for tweeting hashtags Hub Matters and Being Human. So any of you who want to share some thoughts with people outside of the room, I think we're also live broadcasting, right? So it's streaming. And for those of you who have a great evening tonight, want to tell people about it, this will be uh, a podcast that is up on the Hub website. So if you, if you leave here and wish that you had brought your friends with you, you can just share that with them tomorrow. Uh, and then we will have questions and answers afterwards. So again, if you have questions, in the room, hopefully hang on to them, write them down so we can have a good Q&A afterwards. Okay, so let's get going, Professor Allison. Thanks so much. That was a very generous staff. Good hope. Very generous introduction, Lorna. Thank you very much. So, I'd like to start tonight by asking you to do something. I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine something that you really want, say in five years' time. Not necessarily for you, you want to happen. Something you want to occur or to happen in you or in other people or in the world in the next five years. Could you close your eyes for a moment and just try and Visualize that goal or desire. So, having done that, how many of you could do? So we could do that, okay. This is the take home from what I want to say tonight. This is the essence of being human. To imagine things that do not yet exist and to work towards achieving. And this is what I mean by this essential human capacity that is a bridge to the future. So, this is a patent from 1888, an American patent was awarded. And this was a device that allowed you, if you had been inadvertently buried alive, to communicate with people in the surface to say that there was a non-corpse in the coffin below. So you turned a lever and there was a signal, uh, a swiveling visual signal in the grave above. And so the terrible 19th century Edward Allen Poe type fear of being buried alive could be assuaged. Uh, here we have another 19th century patent also awarded, which was for a rat trap, which involved kind of Trumpian overkill. Um, I wonder how many were sold. Now this was not a patent awarded, but this was a French uh, visualization en l'an 2000, 2000, year 2000. This is what's going to happen. How ridiculous, a man speaking into a loudspeaker and it was converted into print. Ridiculous ah! man. And here we have another one. 
uh, the dream of every professor. You, you take one of your students and you set them to work processing the books that are poured prodigiously into the device, and then these are piped into the brains of the waiting uh, students there. My goodness, would that sell? So that's what I mean by bridges to the future, by these, the capacity of the human being to, to imagine ridiculous things and then create them. I do believe that's the essence of humanity. But this is the bridge, but there's an obstacle to that progress. I want you to just think in your own minds about what that obstacle might be. Maybe thinking in terms of what you wished for at the beginning of this lecture. What are the kind of, what's the big obstacle that I'm thinking about? I'm going to try and keep you paying attention. I've studied attention, so I'm going to try and keep you paying attention for a little while by not telling you the answer quite yet. So it's not just technology where people envisage ridiculous things in the future. Extreme poverty was regarded as a essential part of humanity. And in fact, uh, people like Malthus uh, saw the rise in the population resulting in the inevitable extinction or of, of billions of people that we couldn't sustain it. And poverty was a fact life we decided to live with. I think even Mother Teresa said, we need the poor, they will always be with us. But actually, the number of people living in extreme poverty has collapsed. Now, I'm drawing on Steven Pinker's wonderful book, Enlightenment Now, he gave a lecture in this very theater last year as part of the New Humanities series. So here we have not quite the elimination, but the incredible reduction of extreme poverty. Literacy. Here we have a collapse in illiteracy in the world. And all of these are continuing projections. They're not stopping now. Here we have global child mortality. I remember when um, taking one of my children as a, as a baby along to see an old lady uh, house we were staying in the Sligo, Rosie's cottage to see Rosie, taking the baby along to show Rosie. And Rosie looked at her and said, well, I won't, I won't. I said, six months, ah, he'll survive. So there was Rosie, you know, in the 1990s, whose experience was that you know, babies under six months very often did not survive. That is not what people believe or expect now. So here we have in all of these indices, we have this, uh, the, the, the impossible being imagined and then being translated into reality, a bridge to the future, not just in technology, but also in human progress. And some scholars, some people scorn the very notion of progress and try and argue that human life is, is cyclical. Shaw's view said Mayo shows that progress is just a, the, the fatuous notion of a naive, logical positivist. Uh, that, uh, 
actually progresses and doesn't happen and it's all a big conspiracy to make us feel as if there's progress but actually there's not. Well, they're wrong. Pro progress is a magnificent and wonderful reality of the human species. It's only happened because of the bridge to the future. Because people have the capacity, as you did around here, to think of something that doesn't yet exist and create that by creating a path towards including global child mortality. Number of world citizens living under different regimes, half now living under democracy. Democracy didn't happen by accident. This is a beautiful, wonderful invention human beings and passed down through civilization in various ways um, to codify behavior, to accumulate knowledge, to create a situation that uh, results in a reduction in wars, a reduction in enormous inequality, which is a feature of democracy. And here, remarkably, for those of us who are, you know, part of a who were brought up, say, in the UK, for instance, where educationists like Sir Cyril Burt uh, liked to portray intelligence as being genetically determined almost entirely, and therefore the school systems should be appropriately created that regarded only a small minority of the population as educable and the rest were sent to terrible secondary modern or schools or not at all. You have that notion of uh, fatalistic uh, acceptance of people's position in life and targeting the privileges of education for only a few. And yet we see that by 2100, compared to the beginning, the tiny sliver of the world's population is getting a post-secondary school education, a third level education, that tiny sliver becomes a huge tranche of billions of people whose brains have changed by education. And the proportion of people with no education, the absolute numbers go down somewhat, but the proportion becomes very, very small indeed. That has profound implications for the world and for people's ability to work together to build bridges to the future and create realities that do not yet exist. So we should be pleased, shouldn't we? We should be delighted, we should be having a party, going for a pint, celebrating. But there is this awful obstacle to progress. And what is that obstacle? <coughs> Fatalism. The belief that we do not have control. The belief that we do not have control. So uh, here's a couple of questions that were asked. So this is people being asked, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse, or neither better nor worse? 10% of Swedes think the world is getting better, 6% of Americans, and 4% of Germans. Do you think that extreme poverty in the world has increased, decreased, or stayed the same? 10% in the UK, 5% in the USA and two-thirds of Americans think that extreme poverty is doubled. Why is this? Why are we, are our 
beliefs so out of kilter with reality. Well, this is from Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, which I thoroughly recommend to you. Um, this is a, a systematic content analysis of news reports in the New York Times in black and then from a series of global broadcasts in light gray. This is from 1945 to 2010. And this is the essentially a, a systematic and quantitative measure of the negativity versus positivity, the pessimism, the tone of the news reports. And what you'll see is this collapse in positivity that happened around 1965, which Pinker and others argues coincided with the loss of trust in government following the Vietnam War, the behavior of the American government during the Vietnam War. In particular, McNamara and Johnson concealing the fact that they knew the war was unwinnable, but did not tell, kept telling the American public it was winnable, and so sacrificed the lives of tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of American and Vietnamese people. So, here we have this strange dichotomy between what's going on in our minds, our belief about the world, and, and the reality about the world. Our feeling that things are getting worse, that they're not really controllable. And, of course, climate change, antibiotic resistance, uh, biodiversity collapse, all of these things are similar problems facing us now, but it's very, very easy to feel pessimistic, to feel that nothing can be done. <clears throat> so, what I'm going to argue is that building this bridge to the future depends on our approach to these critical notions of fatalism and control. So, let me just say this. Humans and animals love choice. They love being able to choose. Even if that means that they have to expend more energy. That's difficult for a functionalist to say, you've got two courses of action, you can, you can do something without a choice, or you can have a choice of what to do. But this takes a lot more energy and effort. The outcomes are the same, yet you will always, nearly always, choose choice. Choose choice. So, what that means is, being able to make short choices, to have choice, in other words, to have control, is inherently rewarding. Is inherently rewarding for the human and the animal brain. Now, one of the features of fatalism and feeling of about uh, life is the role of socioeconomic status. Some, many people would hold views that. Uh, yes, it's a fact 
that the poorer you are, the more depressed you're likely to be. The poorer you are, the lower your life satisfaction is likely to be, and your health, and your life expectancy. And this happens within countries and across countries. Socioeconomic status is one of the biggest determinants of our fate as human beings. And so this study by Kaplan and Schooler in the United States took a very large sample of people. And they found, they looked at the level of depression symptoms in low income, medium income, and high income people. Yeah, and it's true, it's the rich will get the pleasure, it's the poor will get the pain. That fatalistic song. Big difference between these three. Life satisfaction. Poor, medium, high income. We just have to live with it. It's just part of life. Except, look at this group here. These are people who feel they have little control. Their perception of the world is that they don't have the capacity to exercise much choice. This is a very robust psychological measure. Ever since the last 50 or 60 years, this sense of people who feel they have control, whose beliefs are they have some control over their lives in the world, versus those who feel they don't have much control. And in these people, you get this enormous difference between socioeconomic groups. Look here. In people who have high sense of personal control, that eliminates the socioeconomic differences between them in terms of their depression symptoms. It's an antidote to the harsh realities of socioeconomic disparity. And the same is true for life satisfaction. So, have we found an antidote? Have we found a possibility of negating or mitigating some of these harsh realities that shape our faith? So this notion of control versus fatalism brings us on to how we think about ourselves. Now for thousands of years, and still in the world, Many millions of people believe their behavior to be under the control of supernatural forces or entities or deities. And that has been, for most of our history as humanity, has been the era of God. And where the maximum control we can exert is through prayer and ritual. Then came the Enlightenment. The 18th century, the flourishing of it, when we enter the era of physics, where discovery of the laws of the material world, of the universe, of cosmology, and the amazing mushrooming of scientific discovery that came from the application of the scientific method of rationality, of empiricism, to the world. These people who imagined 
impossible that well, you couldn't just assume that something was created by God. You wanted to try and find out how it was made, what it was made of, how it worked. A bridge to the future. And that was the dominant era from the 18th century right up into the mid-20th century when physics almost exhausted itself with its amazing discoveries cosmology and relativity quantum physics extraordinary stuff that has completely changed our lives and is partly responsible for these incredible advances we see in all these human factors that they should have but then thanks in part to Erwin Schrödinger's lectures given in this university just down the way there uh, him and De Valera brought him over to uh, Dublin and started the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies and he wrote a book called What is Life and it was a magnificent conference last year um, about celebrating the book which Francis Crick, uh, James Watson, Francis Crick read and the aim there was to to create the basis for understanding human life, using essentially using the principles of physics to try and underpin the nature of life. And of course, the DNA structure was discovered. And from that came the most incredible advances in all sorts of areas, particularly in cancer. And uh, now we have gene editing methods like CRISPR, extraordinary uh, flourishing of human knowledge. And um, the thing is, I'll just flick on to the next one there. To, so just to show you the cancer improvement rates, thanks to that, the uh, survival rates from not all, from all cancers are really steadily going up due to this amazing capacity of human beings to envisage something that doesn't yet exist and to work towards it, like the structure of a, a molecule, the uh, most amazing uh, effort that's deployed by people in the service of a fantasy, and they work towards it. They spend their lives, whole lives are burned out and they don't achieve them, but then on the shoulders of giants, others get there. This is the most extraordinary human achievement based on this capacity to envisage something that doesn't yet exist and work towards it. But, all of this is based on a conception of ourselves, or a conception of the world, which, to quote uh, uh, Ernest Rutherford, the great physicist, everything is physics, all the rest is stamp collecting, which James Watson uh, famously, infamously bastardized into everything is physics, all the rest is social work. And you can detect the kind of contempt there behind that. Because th this, is, this is the reductionist, the reductionist model. The notion that essentially all this stuff, this social and psychological, and even some of the system itself, is really just playing about. This is amateur stuff. The real aim, the real drive to get down to the very most fundamental atomic subatomic mechanisms and once we understand them properly and fully and have our unified theory we will understand all the rest will follow this is the reductionist 
enterprise, which has been incredibly successful, flying us about the world, giving us these incredible smartphones with a million times the capacity of the computers that took the Apollo to, to, to the moon. I mean, reductionism has been an amazing success. But there is a cost. There is a cost. And the cost is that feeling that we are machines, that belief that control exists somewhere else, which I sometimes call the curse of genetic fatalism. Be one manifestation of that. So in 2016, the population of England was 53 million. The number of prescriptions for antidepressants in that year was 64.7 million. Is, now, these men, most of these are multiple prescriptions. It's not that there's extra people. It's not you know, <laughs> um, taking for their dogs and things. But, you know, um, but this is just a fraction, a part of the, the drug, the drug epidemic facing us. Anxiety prescriptions. Prescription painkillers. My wife, Dr. Fiona Doherty, had been telling me for years about the, both the antidepressant uh, prescription and the, the painkiller uh, problem. I hadn't appreciated it. But then the Nobel Prize in Economics was given to Angus Deacon, a Scotsman in the States, who showed that for the first time in history, in the developing the developed world, apart from the Soviet Union in the 1980s, you had a decline in life expectancy among a particular group of Americans, that is, non-college-educated whites. And they were dying, what were they dying of? Prescription drug overdose. Not that they were drug addicts, well, they became drug addicts. These were, this was a corruption in the medical system, the industry, allowing these drugs that should only be used for terminal cancer to be used for people with broken legs. I know a colleague in the States who herself went with a twisted ankle and she was handed, without even discussing it, a two months uh, prescription for the heaviest um, opiates and uh, she hadn't even asked for it. She wasn't even in that much pain. So, uh, so we, have, we have a terrible problem of, if you like, the medicalization of our minds kind of corrosive fatalism that's particularly playing out in disorders of the mind and brain. So this brings me to what I think is the fourth era, which is the era of mind. The major biggest companies in the world now are not oil companies or steel companies. The biggest companies are information companies. Information is the commodity of the 21st century. And with artificial intelligence, that is going to increase even more. And the vehicle for information is the human mind. So, in my view, we are in the era of mind now, 21st century, that is going to replace the era of biology, while still, if you like, on the shoulders of giants of physics and biology. But we're, in order to build this bridge to the future, where we solve 
these seemingly insoluble problems of climate change, of biodiversity reduction, of anti-micro, anti, uh, uh, you know what I mean, resistance, drug resistance, um, that, that to solve our problems together as human beings with these increasingly educated force, we have to become highly sophisticated participants of the era of mind where we realize that the challenges facing us, our very sense of identity of who we are, our skills, our self-respect, is going to be so threatened by artificial intelligence, by fast changes in technology, by robotics, we are all going to have to become master practitioners of control of the most complex entity in the known universe, which is the whole human mind. So that's why I think this is the era of mind. Now, one of the downsides of the incredible achievement of the physicists and the biologists, the reductionist miracle of the lengthening of our lives, uh, is being that there is a correlation between the length of our lives and the risk of dementia. And so as we have this aging population, we have more and more dementia, which is a real challenge for the world. So many of us, people of my age, for instance, will be finding ourselves being given a test by our doctors or in a clinic. And this test will be one of the standard screening, dementia screening tests, which will ask us to remember some words and then recall them, uh, maybe to draw a diagram, to give some information. It's a cognitive screening test. And there are these the very well worked out standards screening <coughs> So the study I'm just about to tell you about was carried out in England with a group of people about my age, just volunteers, they weren't. And they, they were, so I, if I walked in, I'm in my mid-60s, if I walked in, I'd be told, ah, I was going to get doing a study here this involves a study of um, 60 to 80 year olds, and you are in the youngest cohort of the group, okay? So you're, you're in the young group of this study. The other people, half, half of them were told, this is a study of 50 to 65 year olds, and you are in the oldest group here. So one group were told they were the youngest of the group in the study, but one group were told they were the oldest of the group in the study. And then there was one more manipulation. Half of each group had to read a scientific article that persuasively said, aging is associated with a general loss of cognitive function across all domains, memory, reasoning, attention, the other group, half of each of the old young groups, were given a scientific article that said, aging is associated with a specific loss of memory function, reduction in memory function, in the context of a preservation of general mental function. They then gave them the standard screening test for dementia, so a group of, mixed group of people in the mid-60s, standard screening test for dementia, that if you pass above a certain threshold, the conclusion would be you're at risk for dementia, you need to be sent to a clinic for further assessment, see if you have it. 
So you have four groups now. These are the four groups. Okay. 65-year-olds made you believe they were older. 65-year-olds made you believe they were the youngest. Half of each group said it was a specific reduction in memory capacity with aging, and half of each group said uh, you shed or loss of your marbles as you get older. <laughs> so here's the result. The, of the other group, there was somewhere between less than 20% met this, the uh, criterion to be referred on. 70% of those who were made to feel older and who were made to feel fatalistic about their cognitive functions passed the screening and were classified as needing further assessment because they were that is a, a remarkable picture of people internalizing fatalistic beliefs about themselves and then these beliefs acting as a self-fulfilling prophecy. So how fatalistic we are shapes our futures as individuals but also as a species. So this um, paper was part, done as part of the Irish Longitudinal Study in Aging, which is a study of about 6,000 Irish people from nationally representative sample from all over the country, aged 50 to 90. And this was a, a little window done over a two-year period where two things were measured, um, among many others. One was how fast people could stand up from a chair and walk three meters, all the time up and go task. Because speed of walking is a very, very good measure of vitality. And the other was cognitive tests, memory and executive function tests over that two-year period. So they looked at how these, uh, in this particular study, how the walking speed changed over the two years and how the co cognitive function changed over the two years. And what they were, the authors, Peter Robertson and others, were interested in was um, the aging perceptions questionnaire, people's beliefs about their control. So just look at the, the you can see all the questions there, look at the bot, two bottom ones in particular. I have no control over the effects which getting older has on my social life, bottom right. As I get older, there is much I can do to maintain my independence, so that would be a positive control item. So people who had negative expectations the more negative your expectations were about what aging entailed, and here are the two tests, the walking test and the cognitive test, here's the walking test, you began to walk significantly slower over the next two years. For no other reason, everything else was being ruled out here. Cardiovascular fitness, socioeconomic status. This, this is an expectation implanted in the brain, a fatalism, feeling of lack of control over the aging process, the result of the people ending up walking slightly slower at the end of that two-year period. That would have all sorts of consequences, starting to walk slower. And then, cognitive function. The more negative your expectations of aging were, the less sharp you became over that two-year period. These beliefs about aging acted like fifth columnists in your brain, in your body, and you started to behave in ways 
just like the people in the clinic who were assessed, being told about aging, many of them were classified as being a risk of dementia. You're getting a self-fulfilling prophecy here because of your belief in control, because of your fatalism. Now, this is uh, hippocampus is a critical memory center in the brain, which tends to get smaller with aging. But here, Becca Levy and her colleagues in Yale, they showed that over a 10-year period, people with negative expectations of aging had a faster decline in hippocampal volume. There are reasonable physiological mechanisms that could explain this, I won't go into just now. And even more, uh, if you like, concerning, is this pathology in the brain that was done at post-mortem, after people had died, but we had measured their expectations of aging a long time before. And again, I can say a caveat, this is correlation and not cause, but nevertheless, the people who are the lowest level of the Alzheimer's pathology in your brains are the lowest negative age stereotypes. There are potential physiological mechanisms for that as well, I won't go into So, what is it about choice and control? Well, I said they were inherently rewarding. And we have in our brains a single feel-good reward network in our brains, deep in the middle of our brains. Whenever anything nice happens to us, we get paid a compliment, we get a pay rise, we win the lottery. That nice feeling that comes from that is because of increased activity in this network, this dopamine-rich network in the brain. And just being able to exert control increases that activity, makes you feel happier, and less anxious because this increased dopamine activity in the reward network is a natural antidepressant and a natural anti-anxiety drug we produce ourselves. And that's one reason why the low, the poor people who felt in control didn't differ in depression from the rich people who felt in control. Unfortunately, as we get older, the amount of dopamine in this reward network goes down. Okay? But is that inevitable and is that caused by this reductionist, fatalistic, ah, down to the, what's happening in the molecules in your brain? Of course it is to a certain extent. However, it turns out that exactly this measure, the dopaminergic activity in your brain, significantly correlated with your socioeconomic status. So the richer you are, the more of this mood enhancing dopamine activity you have. So if you like being being wealthy, being privileged, makes you happier in part because of its effects in the dopamine network and the reward network. So I just want to come end by this remarkable study. Many of us are getting our genotypes done and are being informed of our risk for various horrible things. Uh, and this is very necessary for some conditions, for instance, uh, where there's treatments, you know, for instance, certain forms of breast cancer. 
However, being told you have a genetic risk for something has consequences far beyond just that information because it goes to the very heart of this conception of who we are and what we are, this sense of control, if you like, this reductionism. I have been just controlled by my genes, that fatalism. So uh, this wonderful study, Alia Crum, who's an amazing scientist at uh, Stanford. So there's, there's two particular genes, and I don't pretend to know much about genes, so I'm not even going to pretend to say that I understand the physiology of these, but there's a gene that has been shown to affect how you respond to aerobic exercise. So depending on the allele of the gene you have, if, if you take aerobic exercise, you'll be more likely to get puffed, you're more likely to, your endurance will be lower, you'll be more likely to get sweaty and uncomfortable. So what they did was they took people into a, an exercise lab to go into an exercise lab and they genotyped them, okay? And they classified them actually, and this is a very valid you know, gene which does affect these things. People with high risk or moderate risk are protective, if you like. So the protective ones are the ones who didn't show, who could, could exercise well without this discomfort, etc. But then very cleverly, they randomly allocated each of these three true genetic groups, and they told them a little fib, some of them at least. They told half of them in each group that they were in the high-risk group, and half of them they were in the protective group, okay, in each case. And then they looked, put them on the exercise machines and looked at how long they exercised for, when they started to hurt, when they started to, and also they looked at the key physiological variable to do with their oxygen transfer in their lungs. And what they found was that being told your, your, your behavior and your physiology followed strongly your expectations, your beliefs about what your genetic profile was, even the change in maximum CO2 O2. Okay? That physiological, this wasn't all cyclic, it was a physiological variable. And the authors concluded that in many cases, not in all cases, the size of the expectation effect was much greater. In most of the cases, the size of the expectation effect on both physiology and behavior was greater than the size of the actual genetic effect, because there still was a genetic effect. It wasn't the only effect it did. So then there was a second gene we looked at, which was a, a gene to do with appetite and satiety. So people do differ in their genetic profile in terms of how, how light, easy it is for them to stop eating because they feel full up, okay, after. And there is a, a protein that's expressed which is associated in the body, which is associated with that feeling of, I've had enough. And this is, shown to predict obesity and overeating, this genetic profile. So what they did then was, in the second study, they did exactly the same design, okay, exactly the same design of getting people who had the actual genotype and then telling fibs to, to half of each of them 
that they had the high protective and the non-protective genotype. And then they gave them a meal to eat. And they asked them how full they felt, how satisfied they felt after the meal, and they measured this protein as well that's associated with that feeling of satiety. And there we go. This is what they found. Again, the expectation, the belief that your genetic profile was such that you were inclined to uh, not feel full affected not only your beliefs, but actually the physiology of your body associated with that satiety. So that's why we have to be very, very, very cautious. In fact, we have to reject the curse of genetic fatalism while embracing the wonders of the genetic advances and biological advances that you live with. But that's why in the era of mind, we have to shake off the fatalism. So we need to bind together the era of physics. Sorry. Era of physics, the era of biology, the era of mind have to work together. The era of mind is on the shoulders of science, but we're only just beginning with the era of mind. That is our bridge to the future, and that is the means by which we will, as we have done the other terrible problems facing mankind, we will do that as well. And that's why we do accept reductionism, we do accept that our uh, molecular structure affects our cognitive functions, but we accept also it's bi-directional that our socioeconomic status does shape the dopaminergic receptors in the reward network. That our, the structure of our brains, the functioning of our genes, is affected by the thoughts in our mind and the emotions we have. Genes are switched on and off, proteins expressed or not, depending on the moment-to-moment -moment status, not only of our own minds, but our relationships with other people, our relationships with our population, our optimism, our, faith, our fatalism. So long as we avoid the main obstacle, we can do this bridge to the future. We must avoid fatalism. Thank you very much.